I want to run a few scenarios by you to see if you uh, can resonate with any of them. Early in the morning on a weekday, you're getting your family ready for school and for work, pouring cereal, brushing your teeth, tying your tie, getting, getting everybody ready and out the door. And uh, you tell your, your, uh, one of your ch- children to, uh, to, go f- to go to their room to finish uh, getting ready to make their bed, brush their teeth, and do all of that so that you can get out the door on time. So they disappear, and you finish doing your things. And then uh, three minutes before you're supposed to leave, you walk into their room, and there you find them, bed unmade, in their underwear, sitting on the ground, building Legos. And you say something like, Why can't you just ever obey me? Scenario number two. Ladies, you're having lunch with some girlfriends, and uh, over the course of the hour, you're talking about a lot of things, and uh, conversation's going well, but then all of a sudden, the conversation turns to something that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and your friends start talking about someone who's not there, a member of the church who's not there, another friend who's just moved to town, and, they, and, and conversation starts talking about this person in a way that you don't feel comfortable with. And you think you should say something, but you can't find the right moment to do it, and so you don't say anything. And then all the way home, you're thinking, boy, I wish I would have spoken up. I wish I would have said something. I wish I had had the courage to say, friends, let's not do that. Scenario number three, a good friend confides a secret in you and a struggle in their life that they're having. And they come to you and they uh, lay this burden uh, at your feet and they say, I need help with this. Can you help me? But please keep this between us. This is a confidential matter. And so you assure them that their secret is safe with you. And so uh, you pray for them. And then uh, all of a sudden you're talking to your spouse or a friend and you don't know how it happens, but all of a sudden you let that secret slip out. And then uh, before you know it, the secret's out and you've shared it with somebody else and you violated the confidence of your good friend. I don't know about you, but I can resonate with each of those in one way or another. We've all said things that we wish we wouldn't have said. And we've all not said things that we wish we would have said. And sometimes those are just those accidental foot-in-the-mouth slip-ups that are just uh, things that we, uh, that we say accidentally that are more embarrassing than they are hurtful to anyone. Uh, sometimes they're uh, just careless. We don't think about what we say, and we don't think about how other people are going to hear it. And so we say it, and we realize we shouldn't have said it. But other times, if we're honest, I think we say things uh, much more deliberately. Often our words are designed to do damage. Often our words are aimed at trying to hurt the people that we speak them to. We all uh, wish we wouldn't have said certain things. We all wish we say certain words that we just wish we could grab and put back in our mouth. And James is speaking to his church today, and he's dealing with this particular issue of having a, a tongue that is out of control, feeling like you say things just without being able to bridle what you say and say, I, I wish I wouldn't have said those things. He's speaking to that issue. and to the, This church to whom he's speaking, or these churches, they, are, uh, they have a war of words going on in their church. They are uh, cursing one another. They're boasting about being really spiritual when, uh, in fact, they're living unrepentant lives. Uh, they are uh, boasting about what they're going to do in their businesses and saying, I'm going to go here and there and uh, being proud with what they say. 
Uh, they're fighting and quarreling with one another, as you'll see in chapter 4 when, uh, when you get there. And so there, there is a war of words going on in this church. And James wants to step in and address that and to say, uh, brothers and sisters, this should not be like that. We should, we should speak differently with our words. We should be able to tame our tongues. And so James gives us three things I want us to see this morning about learning to tame our tongues. First is uh, the importance of taming our tongue. Secondly, the difficulty of taming our tongue. And finally, the practice of taming our tongue. That's where we're headed this morning. Uh, when Luke communicated this to me, he said that I was going to preach on verses 1 through 12. And uh, what we're just read were verses 1 through 18. So if you saw something in those last six verses that you were really hoping to hear, I'm sorry to disappoint. But uh, we will be focusing on verses 1 through 12 this morning. First of all, the importance of, listen, uh, the importance of taming our tongue. Uh, James wants us to see this as a very important issue in our Christian lives. He wants us to understand that this, is one of the f- this ought to be the front lines of our battle. Notice that he says we all stumble in many ways. So he acknowledges that, that we all are, have many areas in our life that needs God's grace and growth. But he says, but if anyone can tame his tongue, he can tame anything else. And so this ought to be the, the most important place to which we go. But why? Why is it so important that we learn to tame our tongues? The first reason why he gives us is because God is listening. God is listening to our words. Uh, and he gives this curious exhortation in verse 1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is something that uh, obviously pastors uh, shudder as we read about because uh, uh, teachers will be held to a higher standard, he says, because we are the ones who are using our words as the main tools of what we, what we do, and people are listening to teachers. And so God says, you will be held to a higher standard because you should know what to say and what not to say. And while that may seem to get everybody else off the hook to say, well, I'm glad I'm not a teacher then. Uh, what's implied in what James says here is that, in fact, everyone will be judged for what they say. Notice that he says that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Not teachers will be judged and everyone else not, but he says teachers will be judged with greater strictness to a higher standard. But he implies there that every one of us will have to answer for the words that we say. James here is simply saying what his brother Jesus said in Matthew 12, where Jesus says, on the day of judgment, uh, everyone will give an account for every careless word that they've said. And by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus there is using that word justified in, in much in the same way that James used it in the previous chapter, where he's saying not that the, your, that your justification or your entrance into heaven will be based upon what you say. That's not what he's saying. He's saying uh, the evidence of genuine faith will be shown in your words or the, or the lack thereof will be shown in your words. Jesus says, uh, much in, in the same way James said, you will know them by their fruits, but faith is expressed in works. We could say faith is expressed in words. And so, friends, the words that we say in the privacy of our own homes, in fact, are not private at all. But they're open to the ears of him who hears everything that we say. And the one who will say to us one day, why did you say that? What did you mean by that? And the one who will know the answer to those questions even. So God is listening, he says. So we ought to be seeing this as important. But it's also important because uh, our life follows our words. Our life follows our words. 
what James is saying here is that uh, what we say with our mouths, our, our entire life is going to be sort of drawn into the wake of what our words actually say. And he gets this point across with these two great images. Uh, the first is of a horse. He says a, a horse you can control by putting a bit in its mouth. Now, a horse weighs anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. And what's remarkable is that uh, you can put a bit in a horse's mouth that weighs less than, uh, let's say, a pound, put that in its mouth, and a 14-year-old girl who weighs 90 pounds can sit on the back of a 2,000-pound animal and tell it what to do and move it wherever, it wants, wherever she wants it to go, to jump, to move, to stop, to move backwards. And, and he uses a, another example with a ship. He says, uh, a ship, even though these ships are huge and they're blown by these great big winds, the direction of the ship is ultimately directed by the, the rudder at the back, which is very small in comparison to the rest of the boat. Uh, he, uh, just to give you an example, the, uh, the Titanic, the rudder of the, of the Titanic weighed 100 tons, which seems like a lot, until you consider that the Titanic itself weighed 52,000 tons. And so the rudder was less than uh, two-tenths of one percent of the weight of the ship, and it could turn it wherever it wanted to go. Now, it probably could have used a bigger rudder. Uh, but nevertheless, this small thing in comparison to the rest of the ship turned it wherever it wanted to go. And that's what James is saying. He's saying your life is going to follow what you talk about. Take, for example, complaining. Have you ever noticed that uh, people who complain a lot tend to be people who are very unhappy? Uh, we might think that, uh, that the reason why they complain is because they are unhappy. But in fact, what James is saying is that the opposite is actually true. That they are unhappy because they complain with their mouths. How does that work? Well, uh, if you're constantly complaining, if that's what you fill the air with and talking about, uh, you're going to constantly be looking for more things to talk about. And what are you going to find but more things to complain about? And so the more things you find to complain about, the more, uh, the more you're going to see your life through this negative lens and, and have lots to talk about. Same thing could be said for sports or TV or uh, whatever it is that you talk about. That's the, the rest of your life, your emotions and your life is going to follow that. More seriously, if we are constantly criticizing those around us, we are going to find more and more things to criticize about them. Uh, it's ironic and sad because we usually we criticize because we, we want people to get better. We think that by criticizing, we will improve them and then we'll have less to criticize. But what James is saying is that the more we criticize, the more critical we'll become, the more criticism we will find in those we're criticizing. So our entire life is going to be swept up in our words. And what James is saying is this is an important issue. Friends, this ought to be something that we focus on and, and uh, place at the priority of our Christian life, to learn to bridle our tongues because it's important. So uh, it, taming our tongue is something that, it, that is very important. That's, he's established that. But uh, we have to admit also that taming our tongue is very difficult. Uh, those scenarios I gave you at the beginning are th uh, there for a reason because it shows how difficult it is because every day in our life we're faced with thousands of situations in w which we could say the right thing or the wrong thing. And, and oftentimes it is hard to control our tongues. So let's consider for a minute the difficulty of taming our tongue. Uh, James gives us, uh, again, two great word pictures to describe just how difficult this task is. 
Uh, the first is, he says, it, taming the tongue is like fighting a forest fire. It's like fighting a forest fire. Now look at verse, uh, look at, uh, verse 5 in the middle. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Picture yourself in the middle of a forest fire, limbs burning in front of you, choking because of the smoke. Things are falling down, trees falling around you, and it's, it's destructive, unpredictable, and fast-moving. That's what he says, like, taming the tongue is like. Lisa and I lived in San Diego for uh, a couple of years while we were uh, first married when I was in seminary. And one morning we woke up to this frantic pounding on our door. And it was our neighbor, uh, Patrick, uh, standing there with no shirt on, uh, pounding on our door, telling us to get out. It was about 6 o'clock in the morning. He said, "You you need to get out of the apartment. You need to leave. And uh, I went out on our balcony to look, and I looked off to the east, and uh, half of the sky, 180 degrees all the way around, was black and tinged with orange on uh, the edge of the clouds. And a fire, the Santa Ana winds from the, from the desert were pushing this fire across San Diego County, and it jumped a seven-lane freeway of, uh, of uh, I-15 and burned almost all the way to the coast, destroying thousands and thousands of homes. We see the forest fire right now in Canada. It's burned over 800 uh, square miles, twice the size of San Antonio, burned. James says that's what it's like, fighting something like that, taming your tongue. It doesn't seem like it because it's small, but it is. The other image he gives us is, uh, is like it's taming a venomous snake. Look at what he says. Uh, it's, it's set among our members, staining the whole body. Uh, it's, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That word for poison there is the same word that, that was used in Greek for uh, the poison of snakes. And so it's this restless thing. Imagine a, imagine a rattlesnake that you've cornered in, the, in your garage that's shaking its tail and coiled up ready to bite you. That's what James says taming the tongue is like. Sounds like a fun thing to do after church, doesn't it? But why does he show us these images? Why does he, does he want to scare us? This is a horror movie. Does he want us to, uh, to be afraid? Well, yes. James wants us to, to look at, the, the, at this prospect of learning to control what we say and realize that we are not up to the task. Notice what he says. He says, every kind of animal has been tamed by mankind, even sea creatures. But no human being can tame the tongue. You can't do it, he says. But what he wants us to do is to recognize our insufficiency and our lack of ability to tame our tongues, our, the, the, how they are out of control when they are under our control, and to find help in the Lord, to find help in God's grace to tame our tongues. Because that's what we need if we are going to ever have any hope of controlling what we say. We need Christ to intervene in our lives and change the way we use our tongues. I know Luke loves Lord of the Rings. So I figured it would only be fitting to use a Lord of the Rings illustration uh, as, as a guest preacher in his church. Uh, this one comes from early in the uh, series at uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo is uh, secretly planning to leave the Shire and not tell any of his friends that he's going on this very dangerous journey that Gandalf has uh, prepared him for. Uh, but as good friends often do, uh, they realize that uh, they... they crack his plot, and they know that he's, they know what he's up to. 
And so they play along for a little while, but then they corner him and they, uh, let, them, let, they let him know that they're on to him. And uh, they say, uh, we know what you're doing. And, but Gandalf said that you can take people uh, that you trust along with you. And then Frodo says, but it doesn't seem like I can trust anyone. Friends who haven't told me what you've been up to plotting against me. And then Mary, his good friend, chimes up and says this. He says, Frodo, it all depends on what you want. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and to go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. Friends, what we need in a fight against the tongue are friends like that. And we need an even greater friend like that who doesn't face danger and say, I'm horribly afraid, but who has faced danger himself, has faced hell himself, has faced uh, sinners himself with horrible things to say to him and has faced them down and has paid for all of the horrible words and wicked words that we have said and has risen from the dead and given us the power to use our tongues now to bless instead of curse. Friends, we need Jesus in our fight against the tongue. And if you are uh, here this morning and, and either you're not a Christian or you are new to the Christian faith or if you're young or a kid and l- still learning about what it means to be a Christian, this is a, p- a point that I particularly want you to listen to because this distinguishes, this point distinguishes Christianity from any, anything else, any other religions because it says uh, most of the time we think about Christianity as a list of things to do or not do. We think about Christianity as a list of rules that says these are the words you can say and these are the words you cannot say. And the more you closely you can align yourself with these, the better person you are. And the more you say these things, then you're not a good person. But the message of Christianity is not that. It is this, that God comes to all of us who will say, God, I have said wicked things in my life and my tongue is out of control. And I need you to forgive me and I need your power to say different things from now on. And it is those to whom God comes with forgiveness and mercy and grace and says, I forgive you and I will give you my power to speak differently going forward. And so friends, if, you've, uh, if you're tired of fighting the, the war of words yourself in your own strength, trying to, to simply bridle your tongue by your own willpower and strength, then you need Jesus because Jesus is the one who promises to forgive you of all the things that you've said, but to give you power to speak differently. Taming the tongue is difficult, but with the power of God, James says, we can tame the tongue. We can learn to control the things that we say. So that's the difficulty of taming it, but it's a difficulty that we face with hope and and encouragement and joy because we have the Lord Jesus there in the fight with us who's gone before us. So what do we do now? What's the the practice of taming the tongue? How do we we move forward from here and uh, do what what, what Jesus now wants us to do with his strength? I want you to notice a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, what should we say? How, what, what should distinguish our words from uh, words that we've said before? 
I want to lean on some help here from the Apostle Paul from when he says in Ephesians chapter 4, 29. He says, let no corruptible talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building up as fits the occasion so that, th- so that the, those who hear may find grace. Break that, let's break that down. First of all, he says, let no corruptible talk come out of your mouth. In other words, don't let any talk come out of your mouth that tears down and that destroys. And that's a great image because it thinks, think about all the things that we say that destroy things. Uh, lying destroys the truth. Uh, harsh words uh, destroy the spirits of those to whom we speak. Gossip, while it's true often, uh, destroys the reputation of those about whom we're speaking. Um, uh, misplace words. I saw a comic the other day of a, a woman laying on a couch crying, and she's saying to her husband, who's sort of standing over her, uh, what can I do? And his response is, well, you could stop crying. Not the best words to say to a woman who's crying. Uh, amen? Amen. Uh, misplaced words. Well, well, uh, well-intentioned, but they don't fit the occasion, Paul says. That we need words that, that, are, uh, that fit in the right spot. Um, they, they end up tearing down even though we don't want to. Boasting, which tears down our humility. Uh, cursing, uh, which uh, ultimately uh, uses the Lord's name in vain and, and diminishes his glory in this world. Diminishes the glory in your own life that you're meant to reflect back to him. And so when we use his name in ways that are, that are inappropriate, it tears that down. So Paul says, don't let anything corruptible, anything that tears down, anything that destroys, don't let anything like that come out of your mouth. But he said, let what you say be helpful for building up. You see, learning to speak differently is not just learning not to say bad things. But God wants us to to not only stop saying bad things, but to learn to use our words to bless and to build up. So what do we say? Well, we say encouraging words. Uh, Well done. Good job. We say words of praise, words of thanksgiving, uh, words of blessing. Uh, And yes, even words of correction. Uh, As parents, we do a lot of correcting, don't we? And it feels like, uh, it it may feel a lot like we are tearing down uh, our kids. Uh, And at times it may have to feel like that because uh, we are are correcting things that are wrong in their lives and the lives of other people. And uh, God wants us to to do that. uh, God does that to us all the time correcting us with his words, shining the light on our, on our lives where we need to see it. And so uh, correction is part of that building up. And friends, as we learn to do this, we are really learning to be like God. Think about God's word itself. God's, God's word is creative. It builds. Let there be light. Let there be uh, an expanse. Let there be the heavens. And, th- and they were, and they came out. And so God's word builds. It creates it doesn't tear down. And so he's saying, I'm renewing you into an image of one who can use your words in the same way, to create, to build, and not to tear down. But how do we do that? <laughs> That's the practice of what we should say. But how do we do that? That's, that is really hard to do. And the way I see it, we, we need two types of grace. We need grace for two, two, two kinds of moments. Uh, first of all, we need grace in the moment. In those moments, like I said at the beginning, when we walk into the room and the kids in the underwear building Legos when, when you've got to leave in three minutes, we need grace for that moment right then to not say the things that we want to say and to say something different. 
So what do we do in the moment? Well, I, I heard a, something from a pastor and an author this week who said, if you've ever seen a werewolf movie, uh, that's what you kind of need to do. You, you know what the werewolf does when they, they know that the, the full moon's approaching? The werewolf that doesn't want to be a werewolf, they, they handcuff themselves to a, a tree, they tie themselves down, they lock all the doors in their house, they, they do everything that they can to, w- when that comes out, when the wolf comes out, they're not going to hurt anybody. And so in those moments, friends, please, uh, take a walk around the block, stop what you're doing, walk into another room, don't use that moment to say what you think, be five minutes late to work, and don't say anything. So those are, that's the grace we need in the moment and say, Jesus, I need your help right now, right here. But we need more than that, don't we? We need more than just the control right in those moments. We need grace in between those moments. And that's where the real work is going to be done. And that's wh- where James gives us this really helpful image at the end of this passage. Look with me at verse 11. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? What James is saying there is, Christians, remember what God has done in you. He's saying, remember that you have been set apart and sanctified and cleansed on the inside by Jesus and by his spirit. Remember that he has has set you apart and united you to himself And because you are now united to Jesus, you are a fresh spring. You are a fig tree. And so therefore, it it ultimately one day will not be possible for salt water to come out of your mouth or olives to come forth from the fig tree. And so in between those moments, friends, what God wants us to be doing is to be reflecting on that truth, to say, I am no longer a salt spring. I am no longer an olive tree, just to use this example. But I I am a fresh spring. By the grace of God, God has cleansed me. And so he is gradually paring back the bad words that I've said, the hurtful words I've said, the untrue words I've said, and bringing forth fresh things to say. When I lived in Spain for a couple of years after I graduated from college, my uh, friends in the church uh, introduced me to this uh, uh, bike ride from our village. We lived in a village on the sea that was, uh, had mountains right behind it. And every Saturday, we'd ride our mountain bikes uh, up the mountain and uh, uh, through these great trails. But in order to get up the, get to the really good trails back there, you had to really slog it up this really steep, uh, up these really steep switchbacks for about half an hour. And I really struggled the first few times. And by the time I would get to the top, my, my water was completely gone. <laughs> and I was like, and they were like, all right, let's get the ride started. And I'm thinking, well, I'm ready to go home. I have no water. But they said, don't worry, uh, about halfway through, there's a spring. And sure enough, as we would ride, uh, we'd ride down and we'd get to this spring that was uh, right there under these trees. And it was, it was this seemingly endless source of fresh water that in the midst of uh, what you would think you would never find anything good to drink, you could just sit under it. You could splash it on your face. You could fill your water bottle a hundred times and just drink again and again and again. And friends, that's what Jesus is doing in our hearts. That's the kind of spring that he's turning you and, and, I, and me into by his grace. And so in those in-between moments, let's remember that image. Let's remember what he has done inside of us so that we may uh, use our words not to curse, not to tear down, not to 
destroy, but to bless and to build up and to, uh, and to build by his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your mercy and your forgiveness. Father, I know that I'm not alone in this uh, theater in confessing that I have said things that I wish I would not have said. I know that we have all said things for which we need your forgiveness. And no amount of good words that we could say could ever cover up for those words that we have said. We cannot cover them ourselves. But the blood of Jesus does cover them. It is powerful enough to cover all of our words, all the ones we've said in the past and all the ones we still will say in our sin. But the power of the resurrection, the power of the risen Jesus in us can enable us to speak differently. And so we pray by your grace that you would help us to speak differently, that we might be those who can uh, be salt and light in this world by speaking words that build up, that bless, that construct instead of tearing down. May that be all to your glory and to your praise as we do so. In Christ's name, amen.